my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Clint Arthur. He is the provocative, truth-telling author of 21 best-selling books, including Celebrity Entrepreneurship, Breakthrough Your Upper Limits on TV, and Wisdom of the Men, which is actually right now uh, for 2022 is nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Um, As a speaker, Clint has shared the stage with Martha Stewart, Dr. Oz, Suzanne Summers, Caitlyn Jenner, Ice-T, and five presidents of the United States. So uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on, Clint. I just really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me and maybe share with the audience some of, uh, some of the wisdom of the men. Hey, I'm excited to be with you, and this is going to be a lot of fun. Yes, sir. Um, well, let's, let's start off with where you were born and raised and what life was like for you growing up. Hey, I grew up in New York City, Midtown Manhattan, uh, right in the middle of it all. And I was, as I wrote about in the book, you know, it's a very special experience to grow up in New York City where there's just millions of people every single day and you don't know anybody. You know, one of my favorite chapters in the book is about Ed Asner. And in that chapter, I basically, did you read that chapter? No, I haven't got there yet. In that chapter, I basically wrote about all the people that I knew. And, you know, there wasn't that many. I mean, those were all the people that I knew. And I was just a little kid growing up in a big, big city. And I went to public schools in New York City public school system, PS 40, junior high school 104. And then I went to a place called Stuyvesant High School. And amazingly enough, I I would meet very interesting people along the way. When I was in eighth grade in junior high school, there was an, I was the, star of West Side Story. I was Tony in West Side Story. And we we had another play that same year in the junior high school, and it was Hair. And the star of Hair was Robert Downey Jr. And he and I became friends, naturally, because we were both the star of the school plays. And one day we went and saw a movie that his father had produced and directed. His father was a movie director named Robert Downey Sr. I don't remember anything about the movie, but after the movie, we went to go get a falafel sandwich in Greenwich Village. And he ducked into a candy store one second, came back out, lit up a Marlboro Red, took a puff. Then he held up the pack of cigarettes next to his head and crushed the pack of cigarettes, threw it on top of a pile of garbage on the side of the sidewalk. And I was like, and he goes, I just wanted one. (laughs) then there was another kid in my junior high school he was conrad in bye bye birdie he was conrad birdie in bye bye birdie and his name was john crier 
he went on to be in a little TV series you might have heard of with Charlie Sheen called Two and a Half Men. Him and Charlie Sheen were the yeah. two, two men. And in 10th grade, I went on to Stuyvesant High School, and in the 10th grade school play, I played Conrad Birdie. So I had all these little parallel things. Then in 11th grade, I got to take a elective. And the elective that I selected in, this was my first choice in school. Of all of my school, this is the first thing I ever chose. I chose to take creative writing with this teacher named Frank McCourt. Frank McCourt, he was an Irish guy who lived in Brooklyn Heights. And he would always say, you have to write what you know. And what do you really know besides your own life? So write the stories of your life. Well, he went on to write his story of his life, and that became a little book called Angela's Ashes, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1997 and made him rich and famous around the world. It got turned into a big Hollywood feature film with a big A-level director, and the studio produced it. It was a big thing, and he became rich and famous. And he inspired us all to want to be writers, and I used to read his book every night. You know, I, I, after college, I moved out to Hollywood. I wanted to become somebody. See, my college roommate, his father was a movie producer. And he produced a little movie you might have heard of called Platoon. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1987. And I started dating my best friend's sister and suddenly I had a job working on one of her, her dad's movies. That one was called Firebirds with Nicolas Cage and Tommy Lee Jones and Sean Young about the Apache attack helicopters. Then his next movie was a movie called uh, Falling Down with Michael Douglas. And then his next movie was a movie called The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. And then after that was The Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves, and then Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, and then Eraser with Arnold Schwarzenegger with a $100 million budget for Warner Brothers. And all that time when he was producing all those big movies, the daughter and I had split up, of course, and I was struggling because I didn't have his mentorship or help anymore, and I ended up behind the wheel of a taxi. And every night I would come back to my, I was living on a little boat in Marina Del Rey and I would come home and I would pick up my copy of Angela's Ashes and I would read, you know, the beautiful writing of my high school creative writing teacher and I used to think, if he could make it, I can make it. And I used to write my screenplays and I would rehearse my Academy Award acceptance speeches in the mirror because if Ev's dad could make it, then I could make it. Well. I couldn't make it. Uh, here I am, 40 years later, I still haven't made it. I got a bunch of best-selling books, but nobody knows who I am. And hopefully, hopefully the Pulitzer Prize Committee will take into account the writing. You know, I'm, I'm not published by a big publisher. It's a self-published book. But I've been writing for 40 years. Your book is amazing. Like, right out of the gate, I was like, holy crap, this is a, a legit storyteller, you know? Like, I, I really, I, I haven't been able to finish it, but I guarantee you within this week, it'll be done. So it's that good that you don't want to put it down. So I, I actually uh, was running late to log in here because I was 
uh, reading your book. <laughs> That's good. I like it. I've interviewed quite a few people that link themselves to Stuyvesant High School. And it, it's so interesting. What is it about Stuyvesant High School that, you know, so many um, famous people have, have studied there? Well, it's a special high school. I don't know if it is anymore. You know, New York City, we had a terrible mayor named de Blasio, and he did everything he could to destroy anything good about that city, including attacking these special high schools. You had to take an entrance examination. Everyone in the city would take the exam, and there were three special high schools, Stuyvesant High School, Brooklyn Tech, and Bronx High School of Science. And they're all for people who score the highest on this test. And if you get the highest of all the scores, then you can go to Stuyvesant. So we had a lot of smart kids. I mean, 13 kids in my graduating class got accepted and went to Harvard. 60 kids in my graduating class, we had 800 kids in the class. 60 kids got accepted to my college, the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League school, you know. 99% of all the kids go to college. I don't know any other schools like that. What did you study at, uh, well, what did you study in college? Did you remain in the arts? No, you see, it's, it's fascinating. My parents, my mom was an artist and an entrepreneur. She went to a special fine arts program, which was all scholarship at a college called Cooper Union. And my dad was an accountant. And it was a fascinating tug of war between those two things, but I always was aligned with my dad. And when I graduated from college, so I went to, like I was reading in a book and I read about this international business tycoon who went to something called the Wharton Business School. I go to the encyclopedia and I pull down the W. And in case you don't know what an encyclopedia is, that was like Google, but for books, right? And I looked in the W and there was the Wharton Business School. It was a real thing where the titans of industry would send their kids to go learn about business. And I made up my mind when I was 14 years old, I was gonna go to the Wharton Business School. That was my goal, that was my guiding thing. I had always been interested in making money and I wanted to learn how do you really make money? Well. I go to the Wharton Business School and I, I studied entrepreneurial management. How do you run your own business? And when I graduate, I go home to get the attaboys and instead of hugs and kisses, my parents get into a huge argument, the biggest argument of all time. And my dad storms out of the house and slams the door. And I turn to my mom and I go, you know, mom, the way he resents you all these years, have you been cheating on dad? And I'm sitting there on the couch where I've sat a million times in my life. And I'm thinking, wow, where did that question come from? I never thought that before in my whole life. And then I'm thinking, what kind of rude son of a gun asks his mom a question like that? That's the rudest thing I ever asked anybody. And then I'm thinking, how come she ain't answering the question? And then she goes, he's not your real father. Your real father was a doctor at the fertility clinic we went to for six years trying to have you. And you look just like that guy. So imagine how you would feel, right? It was, it was a really fascinating thing. 
Next, the next day was a Monday. I called up the investment bank on the 87th floor of number one World Trade Center. I got the vice president on the phone. And I said, sir, I appreciate your offer. I've decided I don't want to be an investment banker anymore after all. Even though every single kid graduating from Wharton Business School in my year, their dream was to become an investment banker and I have the offer, no thank you. And what did I do? Naturally, I ran off to Hollywood. And most people go to Hollywood to lose themselves, but I actually went there to find myself. And I, in that process, said, I'm gonna be a writer, I'm gonna be a screenwriter, I'm gonna be a movie star. And I became the Wharton Business School taxi driver. Were you good with your, your money? <laughs> well, you know, I managed to parlay, I, you know, going to the Wharton Business School, I, I graduated with a bunch of credit cards. I managed to parlay all those credit cards, one onto another and lasted on that for about seven years. That's a long time. And then that's when I got the job driving the taxi and I drove the taxi for six years. So six plus seven is 13. That's how long I chased that dream, 13 years. And all that time, all my friends are making millions. At least three of them made billions with a B on Wall Street. And I was the Wharton taxi driver. And I didn't tell anybody about that for many, 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 many years. Now, what led you out of the uh, out of the cab? Well, it came to be New Year's Eve of the millennium. What were you doing on New Year's Eve of the millennium? Were you getting some Y2K cash out of an ATM? Were you partying with family and friends? I was behind the wheel of yellow cab number 6087 in the backseat of the car that night where these two guys who were... MBA interns at Goldman Sachs, they're talking to each other, I'm listening in. Hey man, did you hear about Mr. Carrera? They made him the last partner right before the Goldman IPO and he cashed out a gazillion dollars. And I'm like, hey, you guys talking about Chris Carrera? How do you know Mr. Carrera? Chris Carrera was a pledge in my fraternity. When I was the pledge master, I used to make those little punks dance around the living room of their house with their tidy whities on top of their heads and now that little punk just cashed out a gazillion bucks and I'm a cab driver. And I go back to my little boat in Marina Del Rey when it's all over. It's about six o'clock in the morning. I'm counting up my bills. I pull them out of my sock where I used to stash all my money so as I wouldn't get robbed. And I'm counting it up, $513. I was supposed to be a special person like Chris Carrera. And that night I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep throwing away my life on a dream that's never gonna happen, 13 years. See, someone had told me it takes 10 years to make it in Hollywood. So I come up on my 10 year mark and I'm like, well, it's gonna happen any day now. And then it becomes 11 years. And I'm like, well, I'm overdue. And then it becomes 12 years. I'm really overdue. I gotta keep hanging in 13 years. I'm not overdue anymore. And uh, I just wanted, at that point, I was so terrified that I was gonna be stuck driving a cab because I had nothing on my resume except a yellow cab company. I thought, I don't, I, you know, I gotta do anything. I don't wanna end up as a cab driver. I didn't, that's not why I went to the Wharton Business School. I gotta do something else. And I got out of cab driving and I got into selling gourmet food. And, uh, I, you know, I, I 
had had this gourmet product and people liked it and I started selling it and I started doing pretty good, making some money. Naturally, once I'm making some money, I met a beautiful woman. Luckily, she loved me for me, not for my money. And we've been together now more than 20 years. All of that was over the, in Hollywood? You started your gourmet food business? Yeah. There. I started out there. I started selling gourmet food in Las Vegas, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami. It was, it was all over the place. It was, it was a very successful thing. And, uh, you know, I, throughout the 2000s, I got quite fat and happy selling gourmet food. And then she said, hey, real estate's doing really good. We should do some stuff in real estate. I said, I don't know anything about real estate, but I can learn. And I bought Carlton Sheets. I bought Rich Dad, Poor Dad, audio tapes, listening to them while I'm driving around. Next thing I bought was a fixer-upper in the worst neighborhood in Los Angeles, and then I bought a teardown, and then I bought a vacant lot, and then I bought two vacant lots, and then I bought, built, built a bunch of houses, and throughout the 2000s, I got fat and happy selling gourmet food and building real estate, and it came to be New Year's Day of 2009, and uh, I had just, I had been at a men's self-help campfire. You know, we talked earlier about how I was involved in the men. The reason why this book is called Wisdom of the Men is because I took this seminar about how to have more personal power as a man. And one of the, one of the things that came out of that involvement with men's self-help teams was we used to have this section of the meeting which I called the Wisdom of the Men. I would, when I was the leader of the team, I would say, hey, is there any man who needs the wisdom of the men? And that was a special thing. The energy would start crackling as we'd sit around a campfire or just in a circle in a field at night. And all the noise would go away and everything would just get focused in the circle. It was like the wisdom of generations of men was coming through us and we could answer any questions. We would solve any problems that any man had. And that was the wisdom of the men. But on January 1st, 2009, I had recently been at a, at a men's self-help campfire and the shaman had pointed at me across the yellow and orange crackling flames. You don't know it yet, but you're already dead. What are you talking about, man? I'm the most successful guy on this team. Eight years ago, I was driving a cab. Now I'm a millionaire. I was living on a little boat. Now I live in a mansion. You're already dead. You just don't know it. And I didn't know what he was talking about, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. I'd wake up out of sound sleep for months. I'm already dead. What does he mean? And then it became New Year's Day of 2009, and I woke up, and I pulled out a pad and a pen to write down my list of goals as I had become accustomed to doing when I became successful as a businessman instead of trying to be a writer and a movie star. And I asked myself a question inspired by the shaman. I said, I don't really understand what he means about being already dead. But what if this was gonna be the last year of my life? What if I only had 52 weeks left to live if this was gonna be the last year of my life, what would I want to accomplish? And that was the most surprising thing because 
I told you about that experience on New Year's Eve of the Millennium. I quit writing after that. It wasn't worth it. Throwing away my life for 13 years, chasing a dream that never happened, wasn't worth it. And the crazy thing was on January 1st, 2009, I said, if this was gonna be the last year of my life, the number one thing I had to do was write my book about what I learned at the Wharton Business School because those success lessons, the wisdom of the Wharton Business School helped me to become successful as an entrepreneur once I stopped trying to be a writer. And that became my first best-selling book, What They Teach You at the Wharton Business School. Pretty incredible, man. <laughs> well, you know, ultimately I'm a writer. I can't help that. That's, you know, took me a long time to understand what he was really talking about. You're already dead, you just don't know it. I hadn't been writing for eight plus years. I was living like I was dead. I was living like I was dead. I was just trying to make money and I was just trying to survive, you know? I was trying to have a life. Just trying to have a life is different than really living. I was making money, but I wasn't being all that I could be. And every, everything that I could be includes being a writer and being out there and trying to make a difference and- People's lives for the better. There you go. That's what I do. So what's, what's really interesting is some of the people that, that you have met, that you've interviewed, that you've shared the stage with, that you've gained insight and wisdom from, I mean, we're talking about presidents, we're talking about celebrities, people that everybody knows. How? It, it's not just luck. How did you find yourself in, in the same room, on the same stage, like by design, by... <clears throat> it, it, some of it, look, some of it, it didn't start out that way, okay? One time I was visiting one of my chef clients at the Wynn Las Vegas. There was a restaurant there called Danielle Boulou Brasserie on the lake. It was a French brasserie on the lake. And I'm talking to my friend who's the chef. He's mixing up a big pot of lobster bisque. And I go, Philippe, you're the executive chef of this multi-million dollar restaurant at the Wynn Resort. You got 20 sous chefs working here. Why don't you just have one of them mix up the lobster bisque? He's got a, a hand blender, you know, you know, like you have your little hand blender wand and you can like stir up your coffee and make it foamy. Well, he's got one the size of a baseball bat that he's stirring up this giant pot of lobster bisque. And he goes, I love it. This is my métier. This is what I love. And just at that moment, these three guys come walking through the kitchen in suits and ties. Two of them are Secret Service agents and the third one is George H.W. Bush. And I go, holy shit, that's the President of the United States. And the guy goes, my friend Philippe, he goes, really? <laughs> so I go hot-footing it after them into the dining room of the restaurant and there's George Bush looking at the lake, taking it all in. I go up to the Secret Service guy and I had taken this seminar, I don't know, maybe a year before. It was with this guy, Mark Victor Hansen, who wrote a book called Chicken Soup for the Soul. And he said, when you're 
going through your daily life, you should have a little instant camera in your pocket because if you meet anyone famous or special or a celebrity, you're going to want to take a picture with them. And I luckily that morning had my little Sony digital pocket camera in my pocket. And I go up to the secret service man and I go, could I get a picture with the president? And he goes, sure. I give him the camera and I go over to George Bush and I go, sir, I voted for you. That was a lie. I didn't vote for him. I voted for Reagan, but I didn't vote for him. <laughs> but I wanted him to like me. And he goes, well, thank you. And I go, um, can we get a picture, sir? He goes, sure. We take the picture. And then I had the presence of mind to ask him my question. I said, sir, what's the most important thing you ever learned? And he said, well, young man, that's a very big question, but I guess I'd have to say that you have to keep doing the things you love in life. Now, if you look in the book, in my book, Wisdom of the Men, there's all, all these people, five presidents, Bush, Carter, Clinton, Trump, Biden. I have pictures with every one of them. I got pictures with every celebrity, Dr. Oz, Mick Jagger, Mike Tyson, Buzz Aldrin, from the moon and back. I got pictures with every celebrity. And I asked most of them this question. But if you look at the picture of George Bush, he's wearing a necktie. And on the necktie are little parachute jumpers. Everybody knows George Bush loved parachuting. He famously, I saw a picture of him parachute jumping on his 80th birthday. This is a guy who walked his talk. He loved doing what he loved doing and he kept doing it. He kept jumping out of airplanes as long as he could. And a lot of people, you know, I do a lot of interviews. On one of the interviews I did, it was for a very conservative podcast and all the podcasters were complaining about this person, that person. Look, uh, this is not political. This is about a man who was smart enough to become the president of the United States. You gotta be pretty smart to do that, yeah, something, right? You gotta be pretty savvy about life to make it to the White House. And I got him to answer a question about the smartest thing he ever learned, the most important thing he ever learned. And that's what I do. That's what this book is all about. And it's not necessarily all about the answers, although the answers to that question from all the different people are fascinating in their different opinions and perspectives. But to me, it's really about the stories of how did I meet these people and what did I learn along the way getting to meet that person? Because it's really not a straight line. One thing that really struck me when, when I started reading your bio and um, looked at, at, at your book, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and I'm looking at um, the first thing that came to my head was this quote uh, from Socrates. Um, it, it's essentially, uh, invest your time wisely in the things that other men have labored hard for, you know, the wisdom of other men, that they've spent their life and they've labored hard for this knowledge. But if you can learn from them, you'll gain that wisdom more easily. And so I just, it, it's this ancient wisdom that I believe is embodied in your book and in this uh, 
noble cause of yours is sharing this wisdom to help other people improve their lives. Thank and, you. I, you know, it's the only way I it, look, it is so hard to continue writing all these years, year after year after year, and basically in obscurity, because even if you become the most famous writer in the world, I mean, JK Rowling, right? She wrote Harry Potter. I bet you she could walk down the street and nobody would look twice at her. I bet. I, I don't know. I don't, what do I know, right? You know, uh, Tom Clancy, right? Uh, all, these, all these big writers. You don't, you're not famous as a writer. It's not like being a, 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 it's not like being Tom Cruise. It's not like being Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a different thing. So to be able to do all this stuff and to have the, like I remember when I wrote What They Teach You at the Wharton Business School, I self-published it on Amazon because I've been published by a big publisher. In 1995, Penguin USA published one of my books. It was the big book of their summer. It sold over 90,000 copies in its lifetime. It's still in print. And that's when I started driving the cab, right? 1995, exactly then. So it's very, very tough as a writer. But when I wrote What They Teach You at the Wharton Business School, I self-published it because I self-publish everything now because I'm so disillusioned about my experiences working with the big publisher and becoming a cab driver as a result that I might as well get all the money and keep all the control. Well, after self-publishing my book about what they teach you at the Wharton Business School, in one year, I sold a grand total of eight copies. And I'm sitting there at my desk in my office, and I'll, and I'll show you. I will show you the picture of the desk because I just downloaded a photo off of it today, of it today off of Facebook. Like, it, this popped up in one of my memories. Here's my old, there's my old desk, right? This beautiful round desk. And I'm sitting at that desk and what you can't see is that on the other side over here was a filing cabinet. And my book, What They Teach You at the Wharton Business School was on top of the filing cabinet collecting dust. And I looked over at that book and I thought to myself, wow, I can't let that collect dust. I have to invest money to promote it. And that's when I hired a publicist. And I said to this publicist, I don't care what it costs. I got money. Get me on the Today Show so I can promote my book. And you know what she said? She laughed at me and she said, that's the funniest thing I ever heard. You're a middle-aged guy nobody's ever heard of. You got a self-published book nobody's ever bought. You got no TV experience. You're not a celebrity. You're not a politician. They're never going to put you on the Today Show. You got to go on local TV. I said, oh, wow, local TV. That's great. I grew up in New York City. Get me on my local stations in New York City. And when she stopped laughing at me the second time, she said, I think I got you figured out, Clint. You're not really a business author. You're really a freaking com comedian because that's the second hysterically <laughs> funny thing you said to me in 30 seconds. You're a middle-aged guy nobody's ever heard of. You got a self-published book nobody's ever bought. You got no TV experience. You're not famous. You're not a, a politician. 
They're not going to put you on TV in the number one market in America, New York City. That's like national TV. You got to go on little tiny cities and little tiny shows and maybe you could work your way up into the top 10 one day. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like Salt Lake City, Utah? She goes, don't forget to pack your long underwear. This was January of 2010. My first appearance on TV was January 23rd, 2010 in Salt Lake City, Utah. And it was, I'm flying into Salt Lake City and it's all snow everywhere. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing here? I'm going to freeze my butt off. And are they really going to put me on TV in Salt Lake City, Utah? I'm a middle-aged guy. Nobody's ever heard of. I got a self-published <laughs> book. Nobody's ever bought. I got no TV experience. I'm not George Clooney. I'm not a politician. They put me on TV in Salt Lake City. And I thought the next day I'd get a call from the Today Show. But... Truthfully, when I was on TV in Salt Lake City, I sucked. I called up the publicist. I said, get me three more shows, right? She was charging me 1500 bucks per TV appearance that she booked. And I said, what am I supposed to say on these shows? She goes, you'll figure it out. I go on a total of four shows. I spent $6,000 on my first four TV appearances. And all of them sucked. I show it to my wife. I said, honey, what do you think? She goes, I think you suck. And I said, you're right. I got to go on a lot more TV. So I'm going to call that publicist and have her book me on 10 more shows. And she goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. That'll be $15,000. Why do you keep paying this lady? Why don't you book yourself on TV? And I'm like, really? <laughs> How do you do that? I had to figure that out. It took me nine and a half weeks of waking up at two o'clock in the morning. I would go to sleep early and I'd wake up at two and I'd be cold calling TV stations all around the country. And finally I convinced some lady in Biloxi, Mississippi to let me come on her show. But man, that was like catching a fish. I had a little bit of success and I kept at it. My first year I booked myself on seven shows. My second year I booked 20 shows. When I got into my third year, my 32nd, my 32nd appearance was on NBC New York. My 57th appearance, by the end of that third year, the Today Show called me. And when I went on, Brooke Shields and, and Willie Geist interviewed me. And Brooke Shields goes, you know, Clint, you talk a lot about being comfortable outside of your comfort zone. And I said, yeah, life begins where your comfort zone ends. And she said, well, that sounds scary. I said, when it's scary is when it's great. And that really has been a motto that I live by. I mean, I, I specialize in helping people to get out of their comfort zone. A lot of people come to my seminars to get on TV. Going on TV is out of a lot of people's comfort zone. Some people come to my, speak, my public speaking events, my storytelling conferences. It's very much out of people's comfort zones. And it's scary. And when it's scary is when it's great. Giving me so much to think about. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, behind me, you can see my my brand new book. Um, it Its official release is in October, but I just purchased 500 copies of it. And they're sitting in boxes on the floor in my dining room. And um, now you got to move them. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'm speaking at Columbia University in, in June. Um, so I, I'll be talking about my book. Um, and it's really about some of the, uh, the dark times in my life and, 
you know, how they provided some important lessons that uh, I'm hoping can help other people um, yeah. avoid those same pitfalls. So, yeah. Um, but uh, one thing that, so like you, I like to ask that question of what is one of the most important lessons that you've learned in your life? And uh, I'll pose that question to you because you've been uh, amongst some really incredible people that have accomplished so much and you've studied at some really amazing university, you know, uh, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton School of Business. And I, I'm more than really? that, man. more than that, I've I've had as mentors, not only the Pulitzer Prize winner, the Academy Award winning producer of Platoon, Oprah Winfrey is one of my storytelling mentors, Robert McKee. Have you ever heard of Robert McKee? That sounds familiar. Why do Robert I know McKee that name? teaches a seminar in Hollywood called Story Structure, and he's the top storytelling coach and expert in Hollywood. And I took his seminar twice. And you know what he says in his seminar? He goes, it's true. People come to Hollywood and they do sell their spec screenplays for a lot of money. 200,000, 500,000, even a million dollars. It happens. And then he looks at everybody, 300 people in an auditorium. Each one paid $400 to be there for the weekend. And he says, It'll never happen to you, but it does happen. <laughs> and oh, you know what? Sure. He's right. He's yeah. right. It'll never happen to you. Uh, you know, look, what have I learned? What's the most important thing I've learned? It's a very easy answer. And it comes out of the fact that people say to me, do you resent the 13 years you chased the Hollywood dream and all it got you was credit card debt and blood, sweat, and tears. And I say, no, because it helped me to understand the most important thing in business. And that is who you are is more important than what you actually do or sell. Now, let's just say for the sake of argument that I was the greatest actor in the history of Hollywood, better than Tom Cruise or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Nicolas Cage or Al Pacino. And I went up against any one of those guys for any role on any movie, who would get the job? Al Pacino or Clint the Wharton taxi driver? Who do you think? That's right, because it's all about who. That's, and, and I know a lot of people think, well, yeah, in Hollywood it's all about who, but as an author of a, of a nonfiction book, that doesn't apply to me. Well, to quote my mentor, Arnold Copelson, who produced Platoon, you would happen to be wrong. See, it's all about who. Who, who, who is everything in life. And my other mentor, Dan Kennedy, world-renowned copywriter, direct response marketer, he said, I had a problem. As most rich people do, I knew what my problem was. My wife broke her wrist and I knew that my wife needed an operation on her wrist. What I did not know was who I was going to pay a lot of money to fix my wife's wrist with an operation. See, 
doctors, it's all about the who. Lawyers, financial advisors, certainly writers. Whose book are they gonna read? Yours or mine, or are they gonna read J.K. Rowling's book? See? It's all about being a bigger who. And what I've learned is that who you are is more important than anything you do or sell. But most importantly for people like you and me, I've learned that you don't need to be famous. You just need to do stuff that famous people do to create the perception that you're somebody special. Like for example, Tony Robbins. Do you know who Tony Robbins is? Absolutely. Okay, great. So, do you think that Tony Robbins is somebody? Yes. Do you think that everybody knows who Tony Robbins is? I would say a large portion of the uh, United States, North America knows who he is. You would think so, right? Yeah. Hey, do you know who Tony Robbins is? Yeah. I showed you his picture. You recognize him? Yeah. You thought you knew who he was, right? You have no idea. No, I actually don't. I thought he was an actor. He's not an actor. No. No. Okay. Okay. Now, lest you think, oh, well, that's just the demographic, Clint. I'm sure, you know, there are other demographics that know who he is. Well, uh, to quote Arnold Copelson, you would happen to be ruled. Hey, what do you think of Tony Robbins? You know who he is? Who the fuck's that guy? <laughs> no, really. Do you know who he is? Y'all know who he is? <laughs> See, only a tiny percentage of America knows who he is. You thought the vast majority of America would know who Tony Robbins is. It's not true. His target market knows who he is and is very excited to pay him a lot of money. I know I have. I mean, when I got an email from Tony Robbins' team that says, hey, Clint, if you donate $25,000 to Tony Robbins' favorite charity, you can be the host of Tony's birthday party, his 60th birthday party in Los Angeles. And it took me exactly one minute to complete the transaction and donate the $25,000 to Tony Robbins' favorite charity. And when I asked Tony what was the most important thing he ever learned, he said, life is happening for us. See, I, I believe the life is happening for us. Tony Robbins is what I call a celebrity entrepreneur. One of the titles of my best-selling books is called Celebrity Entrepreneurship. And I found that there are five and a half things that all celebrity entrepreneurs do to position themselves as somebody that everybody must know, but really only their target market knows who they are. I really learned that from Tim Ferriss. You know who Tim Ferriss is? Ooh. Of course, right? Of course. Yeah, of course. Well, I asked my 17-year-old daughter at the time, and this is right when his book was coming out called The 4-Hour Body. Remember that? Or The 4-Hour Chef. That's what it was. The 4-Hour Chef. You remember that book? Yes, sir. Of course. Everybody knows Tim Ferriss, author of The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Chef, The 4-Hour Body. Everybody knows who he is. 
And I said to my daughter, who was 17, what do you think of Tim Ferriss? And she said, who? I said, you don't know Tim Ferriss? Four hour work week, four hour body, four hour chef? She's like, she's not his target market. That's when I really started to zero in on this whole thing. Who you are in the eyes of your target market. And as entrepreneurs, our job is to be somebody special in the eyes of these customers and prospects so that they're happy to pay us lots of money so that they'll be excited to buy our books, buy tickets to our seminars, come and see us speak, and ultimately to hire us for coaching and consulting because that's where the money really is in the coaching and consulting. And I just gave you a little masterclass right there on how this whole thing really works. Very much appreciate it. Yeah. Out of all the people that you've spent time with, who would you say was the most interesting? <laughs> well, obviously the most interesting man in the world <laughs> from the Dos Equis beer commercials. I was wondering if you were going to say that. <laughs> I, if you want to know about most interesting, I mean, it's got to be that guy, right? And he's the most interesting. Uh, and I said, his name was Jonathan. He told us his story about how he got the job being the most interesting man in the world. And he, he did it by being different. He said, uh, I, he wore one sock to the audition. He had two shoes, but one sock. And that made him different than everybody else. And it's a lot easier to stand out by being different than it is to be better. Easier to be different than it is to be better. And let's see here. Interesting. I, I know I have this video somewhere of me and the most interesting man in the world. Uh, I asked him, what's the most important thing you ever learned, Jonathan? He said, stay thirsty, my friend. And I know that's just a line from the Dos Equis beer commercials, but it's a really great philosophy for living, even though I don't drink alcohol anymore. I quit, smo I quit smoking pot by accident about six weeks prior to doing my first TV appearance. I don't know if anything is connected there, but since I quit smoking pot, I've done 111 TV appearances. And I quit drinking alcohol the next day after I was on the Today Show. We went out partying for New Year's Eve, and the next morning I wake up and I said to my wife, you know, I feel like I'm done drinking. I had reached my life's goal to be on the Today Show, to share my unique piece. If this was gonna be the last year of your life, what would you want to accomplish? And all of a sudden, I didn't feel a need to drink anymore. And it's been over eight years since I quit drinking. So I thought he was a fascinating guy because from the most interesting man in the world, I learned a really important lesson about how to succeed in business. And that is that different is better than better. Can you elaborate on that? Uh accidentally quitting pot oh curious about that 
how, yeah. how does a person accidentally quit smoking pot every yeah. day? Well, what happened was I went to this raw vegan retreat. And one of the rules that they had at the raw vegan retreat was we don't want you drinking alcohol or taking any drugs while you're here at the raw vegan retreat. Here's, here's Jonathan Goldsmith. Let's see. <laughs> Why don't you just say yes? I do a lot of these in the last nine years. I have never enjoyed myself more. Oh, thank you. This was an interesting host, to say the least, a very innovative and interesting group of entrepreneurs from many different walks of life. It was a treat for me, and that's why I'm staying for the party. Thank yeah. You. All right. You were awesome. Everybody loved I, I you. I loved it. Thank you. Okay. There you go. That was the most interesting man in the world. How did I quit smoking accidentally? So I go to this raw vegan retreat and I look when I spend a lot of money to go to someplace. And this is why I say you got to have clients or customers who are excited to pay you a lot of money, because if they don't pay you a lot of money, they're not going to get great results. You got to charge them a lot of money. So I just paid a lot of money to go to this raw vegan retreat. I'm going to follow the rules. They say no smoking, no drugs. I didn't do drugs. They say no drinking. I didn't do any alcohol. When I get home from the raw vegan retreat, the first thing we do after two weeks of being clean and sober, drinking wheatgrass juice and doing juice fasts every day for two weeks, the first thing I do is I crack open a bottle of Chateau Gloria, my favorite wine from Bordeaux, France, and we grill up a rack of lamb. But I did not smoke any marijuana. And that's how I accidentally quit smoking marijuana because lucky for me, it was really, it was a very, big habit. It wasn't what I would call an addiction at that point. It was only a year and a half later after I'd been off marijuana for a year and a half that I realized, whoa, I was addicted to marijuana. And lucky for me, I broke the habit and that was enough to break the addiction. Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and it's just really interesting because, uh, you know, in the part where you're, you're um, talking about Snoop Dogg and, you know, his philosophy. And um, initially you would imagine that um, philosophically there is a connection to pot. Yeah, and, you know, look, I respect, see, here's the thing. These people, they have a hard time with the president's politics or the person's you know, actions, Snoop Dogg. I said, Snoop, what's the most important thing you ever learned? He said, life's too short to smoke cheap weed. And I don't smoke weed, but he's right. I'm not gonna hold it against him that his whole life is dedicated to weed. I understand. I used to be addicted to it too. But from a philosophical point of view, I agree. Life is too short to smoke cheap weed, drink cheap wine, wear cheap clothes drive a cheap car, live in a cheap house, be married to a cheap woman. It's all the same exact thing. And especially when it comes to your marketing of who you are, you can't have cheap marketing if you want to be getting paid lots of money to do what you do for your high price clients. You got to charge them a lot of money. And the only way you're going to be able to charge them a lot of money is to have expensive marketing that's going to take a lot of your time or money. You know, it's the same thing. You can either pay with time and effort or you can shortcut it with money. And a lot of the times I've, 
look, I've, I've met a few celebrities by accident for free. John Travolta, I was vacationing at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. We used to go to the Royal Hawaiian Hotel for the summer. For four years, we went to the Royal Hawaiian Hotel every summer and stayed in a suite with an ocean view. The first year was 30 days. The second year was 40 days. The third year was 50 days. The last year was 60 days. And in one of those years, John Travolta was at the hotel. And I heard that he was there. One of my friends got a selfie with him. And I said to my wife, I'm getting a selfie with John Travolta. I, I heard he was going to be at this banquet. I went and waited outside the banquet until he came out. And when he came out on his way to the John, I stood up with my selfie camera. And I said, John, can I get a quick selfie? And he came right up to me like so close to my face. Let's see if I can find this one. John Travolta selfie. Comes right up to my face, looks me in the eye from two inches away, and he goes, okay. And I take my selfie and, <laughs> and I go, uh, what's, what's the most important thing you ever learned, John? And he said, Fly high. Now, John Travolta likes to fly airplanes. Everybody knows John Travolta flies his own jets. I don't fly. I, I'm actually opposed, more like I'm kind of morally opposed to flying my own plane. Like I, I would I like the idea of being my own pilot and flying my own planes, but I actually know people who have died in helicopter accidents or in plane crashes. And I prefer to leave the flying to trained professionals. But from a philosophical point of view, he's right. You know, you should fly high in your life. That should be your goal, to try to fly high. And that's where I am right now. I'm, I'm really trying to fly high. If I could win the Pulitzer Prize for this memoir, that would be flying high especially considering how I quit drive, I quit writing twice in my life already. I've come back from being quit two times because that's part of who I am. And I, you know, they say, you're supposed to like do what you love and the money will come. I don't agree with that. Somebody said that on a podcast, some little millennial kid. He's like, well, should I just do what I love and then eventually the money will come? And I'm like, nothing has ever come to me, nothing. I've had to fight and claw my way for every dollar and every accolade. I haven't had many and every TV appearance and every podcast. I've had to make it happen myself. No, nothing comes to me. But if I could fly high, like after all these years, 40 years of being a writer, if I could fly high and become a Pulitzer Prize winner, maybe there is some justice in the world. Well, I certainly hope you win. That's you. uh <laughs> No, what an incredible book and incredible story and incredible life. Um I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me and, and for all those listening, the, the best place to get your book is Amazon. Go to Amazon, type in Clint Arthur, Clint like Clint Eastwood, Arthur, like the king. 
And then if you can remember Wisdom of the Men, add that on and you'll get directly to that. Otherwise, you'll see all my books and you'll have to find your way to the Wisdom of the Men. Clint Arthur. Thank you so much, Clint. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing all your wisdom or something right at least. Right on, Dave. <laughs> and good luck with your book in October. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.